that's the sound of, I don't know, probably a thousand people stuffed into a single room on a rainy day at COGX in London talking about artificial intelligence. Now I'll turn that down a little bit and we'll, we'll walk away from the crowd noise. I'm Scott Smith and welcome to episode five of Under Futures. Uh, I'm calling from Amsterdam for this episode, and my partner in Toronto is science fiction writer and futurist Madeline Ashby. Say hello, Madeline. Hello. So we had a great response to the last episode um, on smart cities and mobility, which was a co-production with the Comotion podcast uh, run by Greg Lindsay out of uh, the U.S. Um, we were coming to you from a Mazdar Smart City in the on the edge of the desert near Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates. And now we are back in our comfy homes uh, on both continents. And we're here this episode to talk a little bit about AI, a little bit about artificial intelligence. Um, I've just come back from, I mentioned CogX, formerly known as Cognition X in London. Um, Madeline has just returned from the AI for Good event in Geneva, Switzerland. And we thought we would uh, compare notes and talk a little bit about our observations of the state of AI discourse um, based on the sample of those couple of events and the conversations we had. Um, so um, I guess we'll start off with, since your event was first, Madeline, um, yeah. and then why don't you uh, give us a sense of kind of what the sights, sounds, tastes, and smells of uh, AI for good were from uh, Geneva and um, set us up. Well, one, uh, it's very interesting to do an artificial intelligence event in Geneva for two reasons. Uh, the primary reason being that it is the the seat of, of the Palace of Nations of, of the UN, which was a place I got to visit, which I was very lucky to visit and watch some actual artificial intelligence performance art, which we can get into later if you like. Um, but, to, but to talk about human rights in the context of the rights of intelligence or the rights of artificial creations and how the rights of an artificial intelligence might impact the rights of a human being and vice versa. So it's, it's interesting to sort of begin the conversation there in that context, in the context of the broken chair and in the context of, of monuments to genocide or about genocide. Um, but it's also interesting from an artistic perspective, and it was interesting to me personally, to talk about artificial intelligence in the city where Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley wrote Frankenstein. You know, it all it all begins here. It all begins in in this one place, on the shores of Lake Geneva, on in in on a dark and stormy night. You know, in the rain because they're staying uh, with Byron and and they can't go outside and um, they have to find things to do that aren't Byron's normal activities and they start that's telling the, and those are a separate podcast. That's yeah, no. That's 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 a sequel podcast. This is a family right? podcast. This is a family this is a family show. And um and as a result, you know, it is a family show, which is why, you know, she she writes about um a man who creates um who creates artificial intelligence, who creates life, a man who creates life and has it rebel against him. So by the way, happy Father's Day, Scott. <laughs> I, I knew within seconds you were going there. Thank you very much. <laughs> anyway, 
moving on. What was what was interesting to me for that as well was that I actually turned in a novel about artificial intelligence while I was there. So on May 31st, I, I turned in um, the the final book in a in a trilogy about artificial intelligence from the place where uh, where it all began. Which was you're allowed to do a quick self plug at this point. Uh, I assume that the trilogy of novels is still called the Machine Dynasty, and they're by me. There. Where all good Machine Dynasty novels are sold. <laughs> yes. Okay. Ask your local AI for a good bookseller near you. Yeah. All right. Carry on. So I think it's it's because of those because of those influences, it's actually a really interesting place to begin the conversation about, um, or not even to begin, but to continue the conversation about, you know, how does artificial intelligence influence human rights? What are the rights of artificial intelligence? What are the you know the human like rights, or perhaps more accurately, the humane things that we create and how are our human rights impacted um, by the interference or the disintermedi- disintermediation of artificial intelligence into our lives. You know, while we were at the conference, we, we talked about, I was on a couple of different panels and things came up like, you know, red line, using artificial intelligence to redline people of color out of their homes or out of a mortgage. Um, using artificial intelligence to as affect detection for border security, um, using artificial intelligence to hunt child traffickers. Um, all of these things are sort of part of of the conversation now in a way that I think, you know, we we don't really talk about when we talk about, you know, just the random killer robot or the random big dog or something like that. Like we don't talk about that. We don't talk about the sort of disintermediation or the or the intrusion or even the not even the intrusion, but the embroidering of artificial intelligence into the fabric of daily life. And that's a lot about what that's what we talked about a great deal. Any conclusions, any uh, kind of big takeaways beyond uh, uh, sort of what you heard on the stage? Well, I think that people are actually the the. The majority of the people that I spoke to were actually really interested in talking about AI ethics. You know, I think this used to be sort of a niche interest, and now it isn't. I think after, you know, after we've looked at some of the failures of, of automation and the failures of, of alleged sort of nominal artificial intelligence at the level of like a Facebook, a YouTube, a Twitter, what have you, I think people are more conversant in the limitations of AI. It isn't like this magic pixie dust that you sort of sprinkle on things any, any longer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's the idea that like, well, we're just going to spackle some AI on it and that'll make it better. You know, it's, it's the, it's the truffle salt of, of, of your next startup. You know, that I think isn't flying in the same way that it used to. Because, especially because I think a lot of people are understanding the fact that artificial intelligence can be encoded with our own biases. You know, our creations are only ever as good as we are. You know, we are flawed, and we make things flawed in our own image. To go back to the to to Frankenstein. I was going to say that's, that that's basically the, you know, or modern Prometheus, right? That's yeah, the, exactly, uh, exactly. Comma exactly. or AI for good. Um, or yeah, well, which which you took to mean AI forever. I, yes, 
exactly. It's, <laughs> it's AI for good suckers. Yeah. Um, the uh, well, so this is interesting, and I think this is one of the reasons why. You know, I mean, this is a topic that obviously is kind of front and center to the type of work we do, but but mm. both of us would probably shy away from wanting to kind of talk about it for the sake of of novelty. Um, yeah. But I think it was an interesting kind of point in time because, you know, just a week or two after you're there, um, I find myself at uh, at COGX. Um, you know, it's an, it's an AI and emerging technology conference, but it's primarily an AI conference. Um, uh, set up in London, and this this year was kind of spread out across King's Cross uh, and kind of the newer developments there. Mm. Really interesting, uh, you know, group of people there, sort of interesting conversations. But but it wasn't just another like given the the sort of frame of time that we're in right now. What you've just said, um, it wasn't just another kind of AI conference. But first of all, big hat tip to Azim Mazar and his team. Uh, for putting together, you know, really interesting, um, you know, kind of multi-threaded content. Um, I'll come to the to the uh, the uh, also the lightning and torrential downpours, um, like Frankenstein later on. But um, overall, it was you know the 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 key sort of threads through the event were, I guess there were two, right? It almost felt like there were kind of parallel worlds. There was the 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 expected kind of bigger, faster, stronger. You know, this is our where IBM or where McKinsey or where HSBC or where, you know, this amazing AI startup, we do machine learning. Wolfram was there, you know, all of the kind of the great and the smart and the powerful um, of the AI conversation were present. And there were those conversations going on. You know, how do you uh, how do you apply this magic salve to to solve your health care, comma, government, comma, transportation comma you know retail whatever the sort of topic is how can you spray some ai on it mm. um as you said but then also there was a very very substantial thread running along the other sort of theme of impact ethics legibility balance um that um came through very very strongly so i i commend the programmers of the of the event for giving that so much time. And I also would say um, there, from what I could see, um, and this comes back to the rain issue that I'll talk about in a minute, but from what I could see, um, there was a lot of effort put into balancing the voices uh, who were there to talk about the possibilities uh, and the drawbacks of artificial intelligence and machine learning. So it was you know, quite an interesting, diverse set of people there you know, representing this topic from a lot of different angles. And so, you know, that was interesting. I think I, I, you know, standing in the middle of it kind of had a moment where I was tweeting as I was trying to get dry at lunch one day that, you know, after um, over a decade uh, of, I've been working in technology forecasting and strategy for almost 25 years now, a fair amount of that spent, you know, grousing, pointing, jumping, screaming, yelling at, you know, the sort of critical and, and uh, ethical lenses that need to be applied to technology and to suddenly be in an event where that was kind of front and center, but it wasn't solely a kind of ethics event was, mm. you know, um, it was interesting. It was, it was strange. It was a strange feeling. Um, so I, I feel better coming away that those conversations are happening more openly. Um, you know, given that it was a distributed conference, it was a little difficult to get to all of the, the events that I would have liked to. Mm -hmm. And also, I think the the headline in the newspaper was that there was basically a month of rain in one day on the first day of the event. 
Um, so I saw a lot of AI experts looking like wet dogs and cats kind of <laughs> scampering from the rain. Um, but what the, the snippets that I was able to kind of grab from poking my head into different events to dry off for a minute um, were, were definitely a different kind of angle on the conversation. Um, and, you know, a lot more sort of pronounced call for stepping back and thinking about the impacts of, of AI. Um, very, very strong kind of, uh, you know, call for, for ethics from a lot of different corners. In fact, there was even an ethics stage, uh, which tells you something. When you go to a technology conference and there's a single stage that's just about ethics, then something's changed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, interesting conversations around, as I mentioned, legibility. How do we actually open these systems up and make them understandable, which seems on the one hand to be, you know, an absolute necessity. On the other hand, it seems ludicrous that you would even ask to make technology legible, but here we are. Well, I mean, you you would say that, but but when you know, imagine when we said, imagine if we said that about the genome, mm. right? Like the you know the idea that that we couldn't or open source certain things is now sort of anathema in certain circles. The you know, once upon a time, it was it was incomprehensible. Um, but now we sort of open, you can open up the box, you can look inside and sort of see how these things work in a way that you couldn't before. And in a way which the more legible those things are, the more democratized they can be. And I think that's the other thing that people are coming around to is that, you know, once you start educating for this, once you start creating this as an opportunity, you have to make sure that it's available to everybody. And that actually, that thought struck me, um, you know, in that I'm, it's good that we're having these conversations about AI now because the next, the next kind of, you know, projectile down the, down the barrel is biotech and genomics. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. Yeah. you know, the, the fact that we will have, have gone through an exercise in talking about what does ethics mean? What does transparency and legibility mean? You know, how do you sort of balance science with the social um, all of those aspects it makes me slightly more hopeful um, when we get to the to the real hardcore of the conversations about things like CRISPR, yeah, which you know we're already kind of up to our waist in at the moment. But uh, um, you know, at least these kind of conversations are coming to the fore. The concern, of course, is that you know that that ethics washing um, you know becomes a kind of wrote practice by that point. And I think, you know, there were some laudable attempts to to set out some frameworks for asking what if. Um, the, uh, you know, one of the events I went to was um, a consequence scanning workshop run by Dot Everyone, uh, mm -hmm. which is an interesting organization that people should take a look at if they're not familiar with. Um, and that's, you know, it, it rings very, very familiar to the work that futures folks do like ourselves and looking at implications and, you know, horizon scanning and um, unpacking the sort of future impacts of, of different things. And so I was both kind of glad to see that there, that language and those sort of structures are making their way in. Um, but I do think we need to go deeper. Um, you know, every little bit helps as the supermarket slogan goes, but um, you know, I think that, that that's a starting point to, um, be more aggressive about exploring not just the kind of one-off impacts uh, of, from a business point of view, but more systemic impacts of change. And, you know, the un unintended consequences are so much of what we're having to kind of wipe up 
in the broader world right now. Um, so, you know, it still feels like a field struggling for definition, you know, focusing more on quality of data and diversity of the developers is a good thing. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it sounds like in both of those events, you know, we had conversations where we're starting to kind of feel our way around for language and, you know, what are the questions Yeah. before we know the answers. I think that there's been this sort of, there's, there's a tension or there's sort of a dynamic tension in the fact that the field of ethics itself is ancient. Right. You know, the field of philosophy itself is ancient. We do have the language, but that language, to be fair, has been cloistered, sometimes literally in monasteries. Sometimes it's been sort of bracketed off by the, by access to education, by Mm -hmm. who gets an education. And now I think it's sort of bracketed off by the way that we do education, you know, that, that there's either a humanities track or a sciences track and ne'er the twain shall meet, you know, that, that we can't possibly teach these things alongside each other, that that would somehow get in the way of the bottom line of the university. Mm -hmm. And, and there have been more and more and more and more calls to bring trained ethicists, like people with an actual philosophy degree or a PhD or what have you, into tech. But even so, you know, we see people who are ethicists, you know, say like sort of saying things that we can't necessarily countenance or or you see sort of ethics being ignored at in certain places. And it does make me wonder if, if, you know, if the, if the ethicists need to not work necessarily for the technology firm, but for the crisis communications firm, (laughs) where it's like, maybe you'll listen when it's Olivia Pope, who's telling you that, yeah, Uh, well, that that you should have paid attention to, to Mary Shelley. And, and, you know, equally, I think you, you, you sort of see the, the, the kind of brewing fight between people who are coming out of, you know, STS, the science and technology studies community who are saying, sorry, we've been here, you know, for decades doing this work. Um, uh, But it's been, it's been mostly locked within the structure of academia. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Right. And so rather than it becoming a kind of like, you know, I had the first citation kind of argument, Mm-hmm. Um, or, uh, you know, the, the, I think what has to happen is, is, and this is, again, an argument or a discussion we've had in the futures field as well, finding common frameworks um, where we can, we can reach a sort of mutual uh, discussion point. You know, how do we establish a common grammar uh, and from there, you know, lay out clearly the questions that we need to answer and what are the kind of broader social considerations and the technological and kind of economic considerations and political considerations as well. And- the, Go ahead. And I think that that is actually that common language, that common framework, that that creating a lexicon is, in fact, one of the utilities of scenario development, of design fiction, of prototyping, of all of that, is that suddenly we have a, a thing that exists between us. We have a story that we're talking about. We have a piece of art that we're talking about. We have a, a designed object that we're having a conversation about. And suddenly there, things become very concrete in a way that they were once very abstract. And that is the utility. I think that's the, the, the utility, that's the use of great art all the time, no matter what it's about. But I think that's the, when people ask me like, well, why do you, why do you write these stories for clients about the future? It's like, well, this is, here's why. It's so that we can have a conversation. It's not so that you agree with me. 
it's not so it's not even necessarily so that I'm right and you're wrong or, or what have you or that I, you know, call it or that I'm, you know, that I see it. It's so we have a conversation that's that's meaningful and right. we can work through these really sticky, thorny, delicate things together. Right. And the, the you know, the standard process has been, you know, d- develop something, deploy it, um, see the damage in the real world and the benefit, but then have to kind of, you know, go back after the fact and, and, uh, and clean that up. And so mm-hmm. you get these individual sort of cases or instances that we can actually have a conversation about. But what you're talking about is not just, you know, nice words and pretty art along the side of a, of a kind of technological endeavor, but it's a boundary object mm-hmm. that becomes mm-hmm. a sort of common meeting point to have these conversations before you're having to, you know, um, uh, do a body count or, yeah. you know, figure out the economic damage done by, um, you know, something that's not been developed properly. And this is so this kind of brings to mind one of the one of the sessions that I was able to sit in on um, was interestingly an AI and warfare and conflict um, discussion. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a nutshell version of this, right? You know, but when mm-hmm. but if we're looking back at the deployment of AI and warfare, conflict is too late. Um, yeah. In part because of the sort of the scale and the speed, probably more than the scale, the speed of damage. Uh, that could be done. And, you know, one side of the discussion was about developing overwhelming capabilities, but, you know, parenthetically, let's not use them. Um, and, you know, I, I, it goes without saying probably that that part of the discussion was driven principally from, you know, the, the defense contractor side of the panel. Um, but then the other side was about how do we create global frameworks that, that enable ethical use, that enable inclusion and more social perspectives. And that's right. an interesting conversation sitting in a, in a um, you know, in an AI for conflict and warfare um, panel. Um, but it's, you know, of course, now is the time to have those conversations, right, before, before the damage is done. Um, and there were some interesting points made about, for example, you know, can we establish um, broad, agreed international frameworks of usage of deployment of AI and conflict and military applications. Um, and, you know, of course, the, 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 the other side of that argument as well, but what about the, you know, the, the, what about our adversaries who don't adhere to those frameworks? And, and of course, we see that every day with things like use of chemical weapons or, you know, non-state actors doing sneaky things. And we're, of course, we're looking at that in the Gulf right now with the, uh, you know, yeah. potential kind of mm-hmm. um, damage that's being done to tanker ships. Right. And, uh, you know, somebody made a very intelligent point was, look, we, you know, we've, we've got a century or more of establishing common international frameworks for the use of force. You know, you were in Geneva. <laughs> yes. That's where some of this, you know, we have the yeah. Geneva Convention, right? We have these we have these different frameworks. Why should this necessarily be any different? Um, we have ways of, of working these things out, and we have frameworks to punish people or to punish, you know, nations, powers, if they misuse them. Yeah, it's, it's I think that it does come down to that, that it's, you know, I think what we're seeing in the field of AI is that part and parcel with the sort of examination of ethics is the sort of the bloom coming off the rose a little bit and sort of saying, you know, look, it is like other technologies. It is possibly world changing, but so are a lot of other technologies. Right. And we regulated those. 
Exactly. Uh, I mean, there was, there was, um, you know, the example of big data. I mean, this is, you know, AI is kind of the wave after, Mm. um, and we can look back at some of the more simple mistakes made. They're they're quite complex mistakes, but they seem simple when you think about it from the frame of AI, you know, it's sort of the accidents of big data, um, you know, and the tension of like staying in the arms race, being able to do it properly, but do it with consideration. You know, now we know things about collecting massive data lakes that we, that, People should have known in advance, um, but didn't practically consider necessarily, or they decided the trade-off wasn't substantial enough. And so, yeah, or, yeah. and so or we possibly know, that they did know about, about right. it in advance, but ignored. Yeah, right. And so now we know that you can't take it back. <laughs> the, mm-hmm. You know that once once uh, a billion records are out there, uh, you know, once um, U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Um, you know, leaks, uh, facial recognition databases and, and license plate recognition databases all over the world. Or once uh, a major hotel chain leaks um, passport information um, and it shows up on, you know, for, for pennies on the record for, you know, on the dark web, you can't take those things back easily. And so I think, you know, we at least have that history to look at and ask ourselves some more substantial questions. Uh, interestingly, on the on the, the the last question that was asked on the warfare panel uh, was, you mm. know, if you had a million euros, you know, to spend from your perspective, what would you spend it on? And and you know, there was uh, the one panelist, you know, said basically better neural nets, new neural net technology. But the three other panelists basically agreed that they would spend it on social research and opening yeah. up, opening up across disciplines into other fields. You know, everybody wants a better neural net, um, but that net isn't necessarily useful and if it's going to um, only bring negative res- results. Uh, whereas learning from across the humanities and other social sciences, or in the social sciences, may be a more valuable way to spend that money. Um, well, yeah, I mean, what are you replicating? Right. right. When we think about how how we want to replicate the human mind, or if we want to even replicate it. I mean, I'm not convinced that we're it. I'm not convinced that... that <laughs> you want to build answer. this? <laughs> yeah, more of us. I'm not sure how that's going to work out. Um, you know, one of the one of the conversations that go, that's going on in artificial intelligence right now is, you know, how do we quantify what intelligence is? Is it, you know, what can we talk about in terms of corvid intelligence or in terms of other animal intelligences that has value here? in this conversation you know why is it that when we say that something is intelligent we assume that it's human you know why are we why are we so anthropocentric in our definition of what it is to be intelligent Mm -hmm. um and how much of our intelligence is really a very animal intelligence in that it comes from an embodied creature so much of of our reactions so much of our learned response comes from having a body and having a sensorium in a way that, you know, that the thing reading the license plates in Mexico doesn't have. Um, and so I think that there's there's a conversation to be had there about like, well, when we create a mind or when we think that we are creating a mind, how do you go about doing that as well? But then, you know, when you replicate something, what are you replicating? What are you choosing to bring more of into the world? And is it that you're bringing, you know, more of the same? Essentially, and I think that's the virtue of 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 cro- that cross disciplinary thinking is like, well, what? Why wouldn't you just create something new? 
Yeah, and I think like the more we hear these kind of conversations looping around and around about the future of work, for example, the mm. more you hear discussions around, um, you know, what's known as the centaur model, right? Mm. Um, that it's not an either or, it's not a binary of, are you going to develop a system that displaces all of these workers, but, um, or, or a kind of, you know, fairy tale defense of, well, we can still do creative and soft things, you know, that, that AI can't replicate. You know, there are other ways of asking that question, for example, in, you know, an application like defense or, you know, security or, or, or so many other areas is like, can, yeah. can, can AI get you part of the way there, but the sort of the embodied experience and, and, you know, oblique intelligence of the human actually, you know, finish the, the, um, the, the equation. And yeah, yeah. And I think that's, you know, we, we hear more and more of that kind of discussion <clears throat> in different aspects uh, the, that it is that kind of. So I, I did a talk, um, I guess, about six weeks or uh, ago, um, actually, when I was with Greg Lindsay from from Commotion Podcast. And we were talking about, um, you know, the role of AI in organizations that possess a, a tremendous amount of data about what they do but they don't necessarily know what that data is useful for. And, um, and, and they have, you know, very traditional slow moving risk averse innovation processes mm. and, you know, innovation used to be talked or is still talked about very much in a kind of funnel, you know, model of you throw a lot of things in the front end, you, you experiment with them, you find out what works for an organization, you establish different metrics to kind of stage gate the innovation down the process and eventually you've managed to kind of, shake, you know, sand all the risk off and you have something that comes out the other end. Yeah. Um, but when you have, you know, kind of when you're pointing machine learning at a data lake that has unstructured value to it and unrealized value to it that you don't even know, like if you, you don't know what the, what the solution is, you don't even know what the question is supposed to be. Right. You know, if innovation processes move much more towards the the kind of, um, you know, uh, um, kind of high octane mining of unstructured data to to generate new things, and then evaluate what we think the value of that new thing might be, whether it's you know a, a new um, you know analog to graphene or um, a, an entirely new business that we never saw before because we didn't even know how to think about what we know that way, or you know a wholly different approach to healthcare or a different way of dealing with, you know, human movement and, and refugee situations. It, it requires yeah. a different, a different relationship between the intelligent, the data, the intelligence and the human is the sort of, um, you know, the final point of decision-making. Well, yeah. I mean, I think when, when you, you know, the, the, the virtue and the, and the, the virtue of any young mind whether it's an organic mind or not, is that it will ask uncomfortable questions. It will ask things that you didn't think about before, usually at an inconvenient time in front of everybody. <laughs> I don't know what and, you mean. <laughs> and, 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 you know, and given a huge, a huge data lake about a company, it might be, well, why are all of your women leaving past this age? Why is it that, you know, uh, why is it that all of the projects in this division don't go forward? You know, those are, there are real questions to be asked that, that, you know, probably 
other people in the company have thought of or ideas that other people in the company have had. But the virtue of an AI is that it can ask those questions from a different perspective or from a different place, and it can be heard differently. But that's also the flip side of that is that when we give our cognitive load to another being, we're sort of also giving it a certain responsibility that we are unwilling to take on. And that's, I think, Mm -hmm. one of the, um, not one of the flaws, certainly one of the, one of the dangerous places that we can go with AI is that in giving it our thought process, we also sort of absolve ourselves of responsibility. Well, and I think this is, you know, this is one of my concerns around, you know, the many, many, many different AI for governance uh, mm-hmm. initiatives mm-hmm. and and considering carefully the context in which that's happening. Because, you know, you we, we know from many, many past examples that if you, you know, provide, uh, you know, kind of government leadership at any level, a tool that can make them think they're doing their job better and more effectively than their political value. There's a political value to doing that, not just a kind of economic value, but a political value. But AI, you know, in these cases also, you know, you're, you're, you are, you are passing over a certain level of responsibility for governance to, and, you know, to, to a, a, a device, a set of code, an entity, not a being necessarily, but, mm. a, you know, a, 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 process. A, a process is a good way of looking at it. a process that um, do, doesn't bear the same responsibilities that you do as, you know, mm. a, 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 an elected and appointed leader of whatever shape or form. And so, you know, it makes the considerations of how that relationship works and what that re- how that relationship is represented to the people you represent the people that you protect, the people you provide for, et cetera, many, many, many times more important um, because it's not just going to be another, you know, screwed up database uh, migration project that costs the, you know, the IT budget billions of dollars. Um, in this case, you're actually, you know, in your rhetoric, you know, in, in the kind of flourishing of these AI for governance projects, you know, certain certain leaders are making certain promises about what that's going to provide, and and it, it's as a danger of becoming a kind of rug under which you can sweep all of the externalities of that decision, and well, yet, yeah, I mean, and, and yeah. all the responsibility too. Except you know, no one votes for or appoints an AI. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a sin eater. In a way, which of course is a very 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 old. <laughs> Speaking uh, of of ancient ideas exactly you know the idea that 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 you you transfer that responsibility to an inanimate object or a a representation or a symbol is a very old and very entrenched idea um but you know the end of the day i think those leaders who are advocating for the for ai for governance uh, are and some are and some aren't taking a long hard look at what the right the sort of roles and responsibilities of doing that are going to be it's not just about raising productivity or creating greater efficiency and it certainly isn't about you know a kind of magic you know happiness rainbow that that can kind of be extended over a population 
Well, well, certainly like to take a more recent example, like certainly there, are, you know, I think the, the show that sort of captured everybody's imagination right now is, is Chernobyl on HBO. <laughs> and all of that, most of, a lot of that series is who was at fault and when. And if you can say that part of that process was automated, well, by whom? Who wrote it? You know, what was the process behind it? And if you can say, well, no, it was this thing's fault. You know, that's eating all of the that's that's eating that problem for you. And similarly, if we can say, like, well, I didn't put those children in that camp. I didn't put you know, I didn't do those things. That was a decision that was made for me. You know, that is, you know, we're coming up on it. We're coming up on that scenario. I think. And, and that's where the question of responsibility and the question of personhood sort of comes up at the same time. Mm-hmm. You know, who do you blame? And also, if, if, for example, like when we talk about like evil AI, it's really easy to like sort of go into the, and I'm guilty of this myself um, uh, in my own work, the, it's really easy to sort of talk about like a Skynet scenario. That like, well, inevitably, the inevitable conclusion of exhorting all of our or giving all of our labor over to AI and treating treating artificial beings like slaves is that they will that they will rise up and that that is, quote unquote, evil AI. And in fact, it might not be that way. You know, it might just be that it makes decisions that we find morally abhorrent, not in a rebellious way, not in a not in a way of like sort of you know, trying to, to actualize itself, but in a way that, you know, is just following orders and they're our orders. Well, code is culture, right? Right. Yeah. 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 Um, and so I, you know, it's, it's, it will be interesting to see how this, this area evolves, but hopefully we're being able to ask, you know, more intelligent questions earlier than we might have. And I'm, I'm I'm mildly encouraged (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that, that that that's that that's starting to happen because I think the broader the broader kind of tide is turning towards you know a, a critical questioning of why are we doing this and what is the value of it. That doesn't mean that it doesn't it won't deliver amazing things, but we can't we can't count blindly on it delivering amazing things. You know there needs to be a human in the loop at all times, not just in terms of operation and management, but also in asking. Why are we doing this? Why are we, you know, why are we even here? And what is the objective? What's the, what is the benefit of of doing this? It isn't just, you know, pounds and pence or dollars and cents, but it's actually, um, you know, a, a kind of societal benefit as well. Yes. Um, I'm going to wrap this conversation up for multiple reasons. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, one of which is is a delicious meal waiting for me when I stop talking. Um, but, um, just to kind of look forward a little bit, um, you've got a couple (laughs) of things that have been brewing recently, right? So, um, you've been a very, very busy person. What's been going on (laughs) besides AI for good? Uh, so I was in Geneva for AI for good. I was also recently in Monte Carlo for the XPRIZE Ocean Discovery Awards, where um, Current Futures, XPRIZE's anthology of ocean-related uh, science fiction stories uh, came out. And I have a story in that anthology called Blue Lotus, which is about, which is actually about a UN office um, that, uh, whose job it is to ascertain how far along uh, an artificial intelligence is. Uh, the protagonist of those stories is basically the sort of Will Graham of AI. 
Um, also, uh, what was recently announced is I am working with Serial Box, which is a sort of podcasting and prose fiction startup, to continue the story of Orphan Black, which is, as you may recall, uh, the story of the ethics of human cloning. Who knew? Who knew? I knew. So when is that going to be out? Um, sometime later this year. It's, uh, that's the, that's the target. That's well, yeah, I think it's actually supposed to be in the fall or winter. And Um, for those who aren't familiar with it, describe a little bit about Serial Box. Serial Box is a startup that allows you like the technology behind Serial Box allows you to download both, uh, prose written fiction that you can read along on your phone or wherever. Um, but also an audio track that is performed. So in our case, Tatiana Maslany, the star of Orphan Black, will be performing all of her roles on on the show, uh, reading my words and the words of Malka Older and Michelle Baker and plenty of others. Um, But the key here is that you can be listening along or you can be reading along, but you can also stop at any point and switch between the two. So if you've decided that your eyes are tired and you would rather listen, you can pick up exactly where you left off uh, with your ears. All right. That sounds really, yeah. really interesting. Looking forward to seeing, hearing, listening, looking, all of those sorts of things. Yeah. Um, and we've got a couple of events coming up in the mm-hmm. very near, well, in the, in the near future. Um, the first of which will be um, you and I, uh, Madeline yes. and Scott, are going to be doing a kind of special activity event session <laughs> at um, at Me Convention, which is um, co developed between South by Southwest and Mercedes Benz, and it will be mm-hmm. in Frankfurt, um, the 11th through the 13th of September. Yes. Um, which you can find out more information at me-convention.com. Uh, more details about that will will be forthcoming, but I'll just mention to save those dates in your calendar. Um, likewise, about a week later in Hamburg, Next 19 is coming up. Um, Next is a, is a great series of conferences that happen every year uh, between Berlin, Hamburg, and I think some other locations. Um, but um, I am fortunate enough, having done a couple of Nexts, um, in the earlier part of this decade to be invited back um, to be on a, a, a what will be a really, really interesting panel uh, or sort of group discussion with um, Sophie Howe, who's the um, uh, the Future Generations Commissioner for Wales, W-A-L-E-S. Um, and uh, I'll be talking about um, how do you how do you sort of impart critical skills for the future to future generations? Um, so we'll be talking about how you actually kind of um, equip the future for the future. Um, and that's going to be on uh, September 19th and 20th in Hamburg. So have a look at nextconf, C-O-N-F, uh, dot EU. And um, we have something else that we can't quite talk about yet, but by the next podcast, we'll be able to, uh, to give a little information on. But let's just say yep. the rest of this year is going to be really busy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So uh, with that, I will say, um, follow us online. You can listen to us on all of the big podcast platforms, Anchor, Spotify, which is now, Anchor is now part of Spotify, um, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, et cetera. Um, Underfutures.com is now a thing, so you can catch the episodes there. And links to all of the things we've mentioned will be um, available there and on the other platforms as well. Um, so choose your poison carefully 
and um, listen to us, recommend us, please. And definitely talk back to us and let us know what topics or themes you want to um, want to hear more about. And we're at Underfutures on Twitter as well. So with that, I will close all the promotional stuff. Um, Madeline, thank you for taking the time on this Sunday evening. Mm-hmm. Um, and big up the Toronto Raptors. Oh, yeah, that was so wow. And so uh, if we're really lucky, the Dutch women will win the Women's World Cup. And uh, we'll all have all have a trophy to show off. Yeah. Um, and uh, we will lock this down and speak to you next time. So thanks very much for listening. Thank you. Bye. This has been an episode of Underfutures. Follow us on underfutures.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.